Hello and welcome to another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. It's everybody's favourite podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. I'm David Border-Giles. I'm a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University. And as usual, I'm graced with the inexhaustible wit and poise of my co-host, Timothy Neal, research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. Today, as ever, we're joined by a few fellow travellers in the pursuit of anthropological knowledge to chat about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology, broadly speaking, has to tell us in the 21st century. Our guest today is Nicholas Rose, a professor of sociology and one of the founders of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London. Uh, Most broadly, Nick's work explores what it means to be human and the ways in which science and expertise have transformed the very possibilities of the human, culturally, politically, even biologically. Over three decades, his work has been translated into 13 languages, and he's the author of books such as Governing the Soul, Shaping the Private Self, Powers of Freedom, Reframing Political Thought, uh, The Politics of Life Itself, Biomedicine, Power and Subjectivity in the 21st Century, and most recently, Our Psychiatric Future. We're also joined by a visiting co-host, a colleague from Deakin, as is our custom. This time it's Eben Kirksey, an anthropologist and research professor at the Alfred Deakin Institute. Uh, And Eben's been on the show before. Thanks for having me back. Eben's done much to promote the notion of multi-species ethnography, exploring chance encounters, historical accidents and parasitic invasions that shape multi-species communities. He's the author of Freedom in Entangled Worlds, West Papua and the Architecture of Global Power and Emergent Ecologies. So welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So Nick, our usual icebreaker is something in the spirit of what brought you to anthropology or what brought you to ethnographic field work, by which we're usually hoping to elicit some kind of sense of your professional trajectory or maybe even some profound uh, you know, plunge into your psyche. In your case... <laughs> In your case, you do two things that put anthropologists into dialogue with you. You theorize and you do a sort of fieldwork, though a type of fieldwork that I know you've differentiated from ethnographic fieldwork. So maybe we can start off by asking, how did you begin theorizing and how did you begin doing fieldwork? And do those beginnings still inflect the way that you do your research today? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting question because I don't think of myself as an anthropologist, although I spend a lot of my time among anthropologists. And in particular, I did quite a lot of work with uh, Paul Rabinow, a distinguished anthropologist. And we talked a lot about his idea of anthropology of the contemporary. And I guess you could say my work is a bit like an anthropology of the contemporary, or it's an an anthropology of the uh, coordinates of the contemporary. How did the coordinates of the contemporary come to be established? Uh, But I, I think there's one difference between my work and most anthropological work, uh, which is that, in particular, because my work is genealogical, my work is a kind of anthropology of thought, if you like. It's uh, anthropology of systems of thought, of styles of thought, of the emergence of styles of thought and the conditions that make certain styles of thought possible. And then if one starts with contemporary styles of thought, how did those contemporary styles of thought emerge? What conditions led them to emerge? And how do they differ from previous styles of thought? So it's, it's kind of ethnographic, although it's an ethnographic work on a certain type of thought, 
Um, and this is a discussion I have quite a lot with anthropological colleagues because I suppose my work is on systems of thought that claim the status of truth. Uh, so it's not on folk psychologists, I do a lot of work on psychology, but it's not on what are disparagingly called folk psychologists, which is like the psychologists that everybody thinks what they think the psychological characteristics of others are. It's on those claims within uh, the human sciences that uh, seek to map out a, a field of objectivity. So it's a kind of anthropology of thought. Uh, as it happens, over the last years when my work has come to focus a lot on the life sciences and biomedicine, I have found that the people doing the most interesting work in that area are anthropologists, in particular feminist anthropologists. And so I spent a lot of my time working with anthropologists and indeed when I've been involved in, in a role in establishing departments, we've appointed a lot of anthropologists to those departments because they've been doing the most interesting, systematic and rigorous studies of the contemporary ethnography of, of thought and the practice linked to thought. Yeah, but from my understanding, the beginning of your academic career did involve following people around and asking them questions. Is that, is that right? Uh, at the very, very beginning of my, uh, my so-called academic career, I mean, it's been a long, long old time. I went to university in the 1960s. Um, and so my, my earliest work actually was, well, it wasn't really ethnographic in any way at all. I was working with the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children on children at risk and their conceptions of children at risk. So it involved a lot of standard kind of uh, psychological interviewing and those kinds of things. And I guess that's the beginning of my concern with psychology because uh, in trying to think about what I was doing when I was doing that work... Uh, when I was doing that psychological work and when I was working, I spent a year teaching in a, what was then called a school for maladjusted children, trying to think about what was meant by being a maladjusted child. Mm. I began to then wonder what the nature was of the categories that my psychology was using in order to understand these kids and these families and these risk and child abuse and so on and so forth. And that led me on in a long and winding road to spend most of the next 30 or 40 years trying to understand the emergence of these categories that make a claim to truth and are also linked to practices for the administration of people. Because I've always been interested in that double question, how certain claims to objectivity are linked to certain practices to administer and manage and govern individuals in the name of that objectivity. And that experience and that starting point, that could have led people into a whole range of relationships to, you know, the institutions and the vocabularies. You know, I can imagine someone starting from that point uh, and becoming fascinated with bureaucracy or starting from that point and becoming fascinated in the kind of patient care end of things. And I'm always interested in what makes of us a theorist, at whichever scale we theorise, what makes of us the person who asks the question about the episteme, or what makes of us the person who asks the question about the patient interaction or the bureaucracy? So for myself, I guess you um, have to remember that when I went to university in 1965, if you did modern history at school, you'll remember that something kind of exciting was happening in the 1960s in Paris. They were tearing up cobblestones uh, in, in my institution at Sussex University. We were protesting the Vietnam War, throwing red paint over the American ambassador and things like that. We were very critical of the established disciplines. 
I, I initially went to university to read biology and ended up reading psychology and I became very critical in those days of psychology and what one did in those days if one was a critic was one made interventions so I would go along to the British Psychological Society's annual meeting and make interventions <laughs> uh, it sounds uh, like a euphemism in those, in those meetings you know, and, like. the, and the interventions would take the form of trying to explain to people that what they thought of were uh, you know, conceptual questions about how you measured IQ or what were the appropriate ways of studying the personality of, of criminal psychopaths actually had consequences for how you regulated and managed children or, or what your role was as a legitimating institution in incarcerating certain mm. kinds of people. So right from the very beginning for me, there was that question of a relationship between a claim to truth, a system of authority, in this case psychologists having Mm. being little authorities and the ways in which they managed individuals' lives in the name of that truth. Uh, and then a little bit later on, I, I trained as a teacher for various reasons and blah, 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 blah. I went to work because I couldn't get another job for a year in a school for what was called maladjusted children. I mean, nobody really know what a maladjusted child was these now, but there were educationally subnormal children, there were maladjusted children, there were uh, delicate children, uh, there were, <laughs> and all these children had different kinds of schools, you know, and I was particularly interested in this particular idea of a maladjusted child, and it became clear that maladjustment was both a conceptual category. Children were born with certain instincts and capacities, and those needed to be adjusted to social norms and social demands. And some children, because of their own internal pathologies or because they were brung up wrong, ended up being maladjusted. And so maladjustment was a weird thing because it was both a psychological category, it was a legal category because it had established these schools, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a way of managing children who then came to think of themselves as maladjusted. So basically the whole of the next 30 or 40 years kind of started then. Here's a claim to truth which is linked to a system of authority which has a key role in managing individuals according to certain norms and judgments of their personalities and of their conduct. Following up from what David was asking about then, you know, we have this image of the theorist as somebody who is socially disengaged. I mean, the theorist is the archetypal humanities person, you know, in, in a generic form who's disengaged, whereas, you know, your career is involved, as you say, intervening. I was wondering about, I guess, some of the experiences of intervening at the beginning and more recently. How has, uh, I guess, the politics of being a theorist intervening changed? Well, actually, I've come round through a long and winding road to, to intervening more. And the book that I've just written is, a, is I think, directed to immediate forms of intervention. The earlier work was neither really theoretical nor an intervention in the sort of direct way, although it did have those implications. I've always kind of shied away from the idea that I do theory. I'm interested in concepts, and I was interested in trying to develop the concepts that could help me understand certain kinds of questions or certain kinds of problems. Uh, someone rather, I think, meaning to be insulting, uh, described these as theories of the middle range. And that was, <laughs> for, a social, for sociologists, that's a really insulting <laughs> thing to say. But I've always thought that, that, that the purpose of a concept is to enable you to cut into a problem, to make it intelligible, so you can understand how it's formed. And in understanding how it's formed and the 
form that it has taken can also help you imagine it being done in a different kind of way. So the early work that I did was on the history of the sci sciences and looking at the emergence, I guess, in sort of taking its lead from that work on maladjustment, looking at intelligence, not wanting to do a critique of the intelligence test, but see what these kinds of ways of categorizing and normalizing individuals, how they had emerged, how they gathered the status of truth around them, and in the case of the psychological sciences, you know, they have a sort of small grasp on, on truth. They're always liable to be sort of criticised in various ways. And what they had made possible. And I suppose they're going back to my early intervention with my early experience with psychology. I was trying to look at the role that these uh, small authorities for the management of human beings had. Okay, so the argument that I was trying to make at that time was that in societies, the sorts of societies that had developed in the US and in Europe and the United States to some extent in Australia across the 19th and into the 20th century required a pretty intimate management of the conduct of individuals individually and collectively and that that management of the conduct of individuals uh, individually and collectively was done by the, through the emergence of certain types of authorities and those authorities claimed to have an objective knowledge of individual and collective conduct, which gave them leg the legitimacy to have their kind of mini political role with a very small peak, because they would not want to call themselves political. But it was only through the existence of this network of authorities that it had been possible for modern states to take the shape that they did, so-called welfare states. And to see the way in which those regimes of authority had emerged since the late 19th and 20th centuries and, and to see the role that the human and social sciences played within those for the management of individuals, for the management of groups, for the management of crowds, for the management of organisations like schools, hospitals, prisons, armies and so on and so forth. So, so in some of your latest work, you talk about these emergent approaches for governing the brain. You, you talk about these new relationships that were forged between governing the brain and governing the soul, very much emerging from this earlier work that you were just talking about. Also, the contemporary beliefs that we can improve ourselves by knowing and managing our somatic, bodily, and brain selves. Do you want to say a little bit more about your latest work on those themes? Uh, yes, uh so I think Michel Foucault somewhere describes the psi sciences as having a low epistemological threshold. Uh, so if you're going to make the arguments that I was making before about the socio-political role of psychology and, and social sciences, social work and so on, no one will be hugely surprised. Uh, and those uh, ways of thinking, although they make many claims to truth, always have a problem in establishing their claims to truth. And there are many examples where you, know, you can see people ridiculing, whether it be psychoanalysis or whether it be some other kind of sociological or social psychological form of knowledge. And so what I was interested in was the emergence into this same realm of uh, ways of human beings understanding and managing themselves, of concepts and conceptions and ways of intervening that were grounded in, in uh, sciences that had a higher epistemological threshold, and those were the life sciences, and in particular the sciences of the body and of the soul. 
And I was interested in the ways in which the life sciences were having an increasingly powerful way of regulating not just reproductive technologies, but regulating life, death and everything in between. And that was really the point at which I became very engaged with anthropologists, actually, because the most interesting people, especially people who'd started doing work on reproductive technologies, uh, were feminist anthropologists. And I read their work, and the best of that work was a very detailed charting of what, in my terms, would be styles of thought and the modes of intervention and the forms of subjectification, the ways in which people took those styles of thought and helped them understand themselves. And so starting with the question of the management of reproduction and the turning of reproduction into something that was governable by individuals and governable by others, I tried to look at the ways in which other corporeal capacities were seen as intelligible, manageable and open to transformation by individuals and by others to do with health, to do with fitness, to do with the management of the capacities of the human body. And then came the question of, well, if the human body had become seen as a kind of intelligible machine, something that could be understood increasingly at the molecular level in terms of the ways in which its organs, uh, their relationship with one another, the modes in which they develop, the kinds of pathologies, etc., could be understood rationally and therefore, in a sense, reverse-engineered and intervened in. If that was the case around the human body, what was the case around the human brain. Were we still Cartesian? There's a, a paper by Ian Hacking which argued that in a sense our bodies had become open to these kinds of management but the brain ha was the kind of last frontier because it was it was in a sense opaque to management. And then what interested me was the way in which in the emergence of, in recent developments in neurobiology, the brain itself became open to certain kinds of thought it could be reverse engineered at the molecular level. The brain was nothing more than a set of relationships amongst molecules and then amongst nerve cells and then amongst the relationship between nerve cells and so on. It itself could be reverse engineered and if it could be reverse engineered, at least in thought, then it could be intervened in at this molecular level to transform it. So that was the kind of line of exploration that I was moving through. And of course I should step back from that a bit and say, well, to some extent, they're fantasies, they are desires, they are hopes that we can do this. But even at the most basic level, to reverse engineer reproductive capacities has proved to be quite difficult. And in your own work, the attempt to understand things at the genetic level and believe that once you understand things at the genetic level, you can then intervene at the genetic level has proved much more elusive than in the dreams that were around 20 or 30 years ago with the Human Genome Project. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit more. I think some of these recent papers are really definitive reviews of some of these earlier promissory discourses, you know, the gene for X. Like earlier, it was thought that one could identify a gene for schizophrenia, manic depression, and, you know, the gay gene, all these kinds of things. And you've done a pretty exhaustive, authoritative review of this literature. What can we say now about these earlier genetic claims and the latest genomic sciences? Well, I think we can start by saying that that dream has not died. 
that dream that the more we know about the human body, the more we know about the human brain, the more we can understand these at the molecular level, the more we can see that they are mechanism and not mystery, the more we can understand the mechanisms at the most basic level, then surely it must be the case that we can understand pathologies in terms of how these mechanisms go wrong. And if we can understand the pathologies in terms of how the mechanisms go wrong, then we must be able to do therapies in order to modify those pathologies. That dream still exists. I think the I'm a vitalist. I'm a neo-vitalist. And I'm not a vitalist in that I believe there's some elan vital that kind of makes the living different from the non-living. But I'm a vitalist in that I think that living bodies, living entities, have certain, have developed certain characteristics which arise out of incredibly complicated relationships, emerging relationships amongst the whole that make them extremely resistant to engineering at this molecular level. And I think the problem with the dreams is that the dreams believe that the body and the brain were amenable to engineering at the molecular level. And to some extent that was linked to the kinds of uh, styles of thought, experimental styles of thought that became so powerful, which were reductionist both in an empirical way and in a metaphysical way. And in an empirical way, because they argue that if you could understand the simplest elements of these processes, the simplest organisms and the simplest elements in the simplest organisms, then you could, in a sense, move from those, scale them up to more and more complicated organisms, because you'd understood the basic processes. Uh, And they were kind of metaphysical in the sense that they believed that it was at this level that you could understand the nature of the organism. That was a commitment to, to reductionism, which was not just simplifying things in the lab, which is a very powerful experimental technique, but that once you knew things at the simplest level, then the more complex was just an accumulation of the simple. And I think that was the problem that we discovered with genetics, and it was especially the problem when we, that we discovered with the genetics of highly complex things like the human brain, you know, which has billions and billions of cells with trillions and trillions of connections in those cells, which has emerged over a life history from the first division after conception, always in constant transaction with its milieu, always highly plastic and modifiable. It's proved incredibly difficult in almost all cases to do that kind of scaling up from the very simple to the complex. Mm. I remember a small anecdote. When I was at the London School of Economics, where I was for 10 years, I was asked to chair a big lecture given by Eric Kandel, who'd not long uh, ago received the Nobel Prize for his work on memory. And Kandel was a very interesting character, and he opened his lecture uh, by a memory that he had when he was in Vienna at the time of the Anschluss, when the stormtroopers came rushing into his parents' flat, and he was sitting on the floor playing with a little blue train. And he still had this memory of himself sitting on the floor playing with a little blue train. Anyhow, to cut a long story short, he moves from Vienna, he goes to the States, he starts 
training as a doctor, he trains as an analyst, he discovers that he's not going to anywhere doing analysis, psychoanalysis, and he chooses to do experimental biology working on the simplest organism that he can work on, which is the Californian sea snail or the Californian sea slug, which has about 350 neurons that you can see and has a very primitive memory. of It has a gill withdrawal reflex that will, uh, after a while, it will stop. If you keep poking, it'll stop withdrawing its gill when you poke it so it's, it's remembered something oh, wow. and he knows everything absolutely everything about how at the biophysical level that change that learning or that memory in the californian sea snail or californian sea slug has emerged and it's very very impressive and at the end of that lecture which i was chairing i took the chair's privilege and i said well that's really interesting professor candell but can you tell us how you remember sitting on the floor in your parents flat playing with your little blue train in 1930 whatever and the answer of course is no mm. that the hope to be able to scale up from this molecular level to understand the more complex structures of the memories that you and i have that make us human has proved to be elusive Sorry, that's a long and rambling way of trying to get through the question. It leads, leads me to a follow-up, which is, um, I was wondering if you'd like to comment on how those dreams have gone feral, in a sense. Mm. You've written about you know, neurobiology and psychiatry making a wager on the brain. And we could argue that physical sciences have also made a wager on DNA, that those dreams of that location of, or that identity with the organ... Uh, have now kind of gone feral. They're out there in society and we have claims about DNA testing. You can discover your identity through your DNA testing. Is that a good narration that these have gone from the lab out into society, these kinds of claims, or is it more complicated than that? I think as the good old social scientist answer always is to these questions, it's more complicated than that. Um, and it's not completely untrue, you know, because we are, for certain things, we do know and can know much more than we ever did. I mean, there are a small number of very serious disorders that are based on uh, mutations in single genes or a very small number of genes. They are capable of being identified at birth or even before birth. They are possibly, and Eben would know more about this, some of them capable of correction or at least the dream that they're capable of correction. So for some things, that idea that you can understand things at a very simple level and then you can understand it out in society and then you can deal with some key questions that are very challenging questions for parents who have children who have single gene disorders that are going to cause them immense uh, suffering and pain and often bring them to an early death can be intervened in. The difficulty is that that's only true of a very small number of disorders, although they do affect a large number of people. You know, there are quite a considerable number of people who are affected by these single gene disorders, but it's not been possible to move from those to complex disorders. So when I started doing this work, the model was always of Huntington's disease. So we know where Huntington's disease is. It's a CAG repeat, I believe, on the short arm of chromosome 4, that if you have more, less than 26 of CAG, CAG, CAG repeats in this particular area, you're not going to get HD. If you have more than 28, you almost certainly are going to get HD. Uh, if you have just in between, it's uncertain, etc. So this seems to demonstrate in a real and, and very horrible disorder that you can identify specifically its genomic basis. But two things followed. A, we've still got no 
therapies for HD, despite the fact that we know exactly where it is and what it is, we've still got no ways of intervening in it. When we know the genomics, we don't know how soon a person's going to develop the disorder, how seriously it's going to be, how fast it's going to develop, etc., etc. So even knowing that, we don't know. But more important, that which was thought to be, in a sense, the paradigm, the example which we could then use to think about more complex genomic disorders, which we know about because they do run in families, you know, has proved not to be the case. We can't understand more complex disorders through the ways in which we understood these very simple single gene disorders. And that's certainly the... Tr just to go there's a long way round to get back to your question, it's certainly the case with those things that we call uh, mental disorders or psychiatric disorders. Even Alzheimer's, which is the disorder which has the most commonly accepted, clear neurobiological base in the brain, we still don't understand what the genomics of Alzheimer's is, apart from one type of Alzheimer's. We don't really understand what the pathology is, although people say it's to do with plaques and tangles in the brain. We don't understand why, if we can bash out all these plaques and tangles, which we can do, we can't cure Alzheimer's. Uh, and we can't really differentiate it from normal ageing. So even the things that seem like the strongest possible cases for being able to understand their neurobiological base proved to be more challenging. And when it comes even to very severe disorders, like the disorder that's called schizophrenia, the latest uh, research finds something like 120, 118 loci where people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia differentiate from those people without a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Most of these loci, these genetic variants that differentiate those who who are diagnosed and who are not diagnosed, are in areas of the brain we don't know anything at all about. We don't know how they work. None of them is necessary for the development of this disorder. None of them is sufficient for the development of this disorder. <clears throat> you know, to use the cliche, the more we know, the more we don't know. Mm. Which doesn't mean, to my mind, that these things are mysterious fates or whatever. It just means that we have to give... As a vitalist, we have to kind of understand the vital properties of the human brain and its complexity as it's developed over a life course and avoid the trap of thinking that we can have a simple way of diagnosing and intervening in it. Can I come back to the question of intervention? Because I'm interested in the long and circuitous route that you were talking about having taken away from and back to thinking about your work as an intervention. What different sorts of interventions are you able to make now from at the outset? This is a difficult question for me. I was a Marxist way back when. I was trained in British Althusserianism, very rigorous Althusserianism. The first work that I did, which pretty soon abandoned, was under the heading of ideology and the critique of ideology. And I suppose there, when I was uh, young and naive, I thought, well, the truth is always revolutionary. So if we can only dispel errors and get to the truth, you know, we will find a progressive way forward. And I, a, I don't find the concept of ideology very, uh, very helpful these days. And two, I'm not sure that we can find truths which are always going to ground a progressive politics. Mm. Although I do think, I should say, this was the sort of blinding realisation I had many years ago when I started doing my work, that actually the most important question for us to study is what has come to be true rather than to study falsity. 
how have certain things come to be taken as true and what are the ways in which they've come to be taken as true and what are the consequences of them coming to be taken as true. So I suppose the intervention that follows from that uh, is to say, well, some of the things which you have taken to be true, which have grounded the kinds of interventions which you are making, have a much more shaky truth status than you have come to uh, you have come to assert, and perhaps even that you believe. So after a long period of trying to study in the life sciences how certain things have come to be true, in the psychological sciences how things have come to be true, in the brain sciences how some things have come to be true, and especially in psychiatry how things have come to be true, uh, it struck me that it was about time that I turned that into something which was a more direct intervention into the field of psychiatry. Now I have always had a lot of friends who've lived under the description of severe and enduring psychiatric mm -hmm. disorders. I've worked a lot with psychiatrists, taught a lot of people who were going to be psychiatric nurses. I've spent a lot of time visiting psychiatric hospitals. So I have a long commitment to working with radical critiques of psychiatric truth. And at a certain point, it struck me that I ought to move more directly from, if you like, analysing the rules of the games by which truth had come to exist, to actually directly intervening in those games. And I read a piece, it wasn't the beginning of this, but it, was, it helped me clarify things, a piece by Didier Fassam, which was called, I believe, Another Politics of Life is Possible. And I thought, right, that is actually a very good slogan Having always said another politics of life is possible, what would another politics of psychiatric life be like? And so it seemed to me that it was time to look very clearly without a lot of complicated conceptual language at what the key claims to truth were of contemporary psychiatry to show using as rigorous uh, analytical techniques as I could, actually looking at the experiments, looking at the statistics, uh, looking at the evidence, how solid or flaky were their claims to truth. And if their claims to truth were flaky, what might be an alternative which engaged more directly and more productively with the kinds of challenges that my friends who live with these conditions the challenges that they faced. And that is what I tried to do in this last book, which is why it's much more kind of direct. It's much less Foucauldian than the mm. others. So people always, I think, trying to be reasonably complimentary, say that my work is very Foucauldian. He's a <laughs> disciple of Michel Foucault, which is a kind of nice thing to say, I suppose. I'm a great admirer of Michel Foucault. But if I am a disciple, it was to like learn from his methods of investigation and then do the job myself on our, our problems, which are not the same as his problems, mm -hmm. rather than do a lot of endless commentary on Michel Foucault. So having developed these concepts, what could you actually do with them to intervene? And of course, that wasn't foreign to Foucault, intervened in questions of psychiatric politics, and intervened in questions of prison politics and intervened to some extent in questions of sexual politics. 
He sort of kept that a bit separate. Those direct interventions kept them a bit separate from his writings. They were done in interviews and things like that. Mm. So it's uh, it's not a non-Foucauldian thing to say if one <laughs> if one needs that kind of justification. But mainly, it was something which I felt. If I, if I couldn't, at the end of 30 or 40 years of studying these things, say something which made some difference to the conditions and the situations which I've been studying, then it was all a bit of a waste of time, really. Canonically, Foucauldian or not, how has it been received by uh, people within psychiatry, this, this more recent turn? Too soon to tell, right. I think. Too soon to tell. And maybe I'll um, ask a follow-up question. You know, you were just talking about mentoring psychiatric nurses, and, you know, I'd imagine throughout your career you've developed these collaborations and lifelong friendships, what Jenny Reardon might call critical friendships. So how do you negotiate these relationships where there might or might not be shared critical sensibilities where some are still holding on to DNA dreams. How do you negotiate some of these longer-term relationships? I mean, that is a really interesting and difficult question. I suppose I start from the belief, the assumption, which I think is the best assumption to start from, that everybody is trying to do their best. Uh, I'm not really interested in saying that people are being disingenuous, that they're saying one thing and doing another, or they're doing it all for their Nobel Prizes or whatever. So let's assume that everybody is doing their best. I also recognise that for many of the professionals who I've worked with, their capacity to change the conditions under which they work is really a very limited one. At one stage I was doing quite a lot of work with forensic psychiatrists, and one of the things that forensic psychiatrists have to do is assess risk. They're always being asked to assess risk. So they go into the courtroom and they're supposed to advise on whether a particular individual in the courtroom is likely to be risky. Are they likely to do X again or Y again or whatever? And it so happens that they are very, very, very bad at assessing risk. And all the research that's been done shows that, you know, they are no better than lay people and often worse than lay people and making assessments of the risk of someone who's committed a murder being likely to commit a murder again or whatever it happens to be. Nonetheless, they are obliged professionally and obliged by the structure of the courtroom to make an assessment of risk. So they are in you know, what, what I think Deleuze would call a very, very cramped space. They've got very, very limited room for manoeuvre. They can't go into the courtroom and they're asked to make an assessment of risk and then say, well, well, my lord, I'm afraid that we are completely incapable of making <laughs> like an assessment refuse. of risk. You, know, you do it. You know, you're just as good as me. <laughs> they, they can't do that. And so they have to work within this cramped space. When I work with psychiatric nurses, the capacity to change anything in the psychiatric hospital is really very limited. And so they would you know, they would ask me, as they would ask you or anybody else, well, given I can't, you know, I'm not going to, you know, smash capitalism and replace it with something nicer or do away with the psychiatric hospitals, how can I work? Or a clinical psychiatrist, how can he work? He's not going to change the conditions that have led his patient into the situation of great distress so I think it's a very, very difficult question. In the book, I do argue for a radically different role for psychiatrists. I say that, well, yes, psychiatrists are going to have to be in the clinic dealing with people at the end point at which they actually come to be in situations of extreme distress. But if the answer... So at the moment we're having a, a quote, epidemic of childhood mental health. 
What's the answer to the epidemic of childhood mental health? Train more child psychiatrists. Is that, and of course, you might want to say, yes, it takes a, it's very difficult for a child who is in mental distress to get to see a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist, so train more psychiatrists might be one good response. But if the only thing one can say, if the only thing a psychiatrist can say is, let's have more psychiatrists dealing with child mental ill health, that's a pretty <laughs> pathetic kind of answer to the situation. You've got, if you're a psychiatrist, it seems to me, you've got to have an obligation to try and understand how that condition has emerged. So my department, which uh, you mentioned right at the beginning, David, is called Global Health and Social Medicine. And, you know, what's the basic thesis of social medicine is that rather than or as well as trying to cure the people who get sick, you try to understand the conditions that have thrown them into illness in the first place. So a social medicine approach to psychiatry would involve psychiatrists, I'm afraid, getting involved in the less glamorous business of public health, of urban planning, of school curriculums, of all those things which we know, of the use of social media, all those things which we know throw people into situations of severe distress, all those forms of adversity. Only then are they going to have any real impact on the rising rates of incidence of these disorders. So that would be my critical friendship thing, to say, yes, I absolutely understand the limits on what you can do right now, but there are also other things that you can do or advocate for uh, which might, in the medium term, make some changes and which wouldn't be of the form of, you know, right, I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing and then in the other part of my life smash capitalism and <laughs> replace it with something nicer because that's not going to happen. But there are some small intermediate things that might be done to mitigate the challenges which I'm having. But I wouldn't say it's easy, and it's all too easy for the social scientist, you know, to be looking over people's shoulders and saying, oh, I know you're, why you're doing what you're doing, and don't you know what you're doing is likely to have no effect whatsoever, and then retreat to the comfort of the lecture theatre. And that's not an ethically appropriate way for me to behave as a social scientist. There's also the problem of translating to policymakers and people at the at the coalface. I mean, I always teach my students to push up their imaginary glasses on their nose and say it's more complicated than that. Yeah. If they get nothing else out of the class, get that. But then that's useless to a policymaker. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in, and maybe this has to do with making theories of the middle range your business. I'm interested in what the sweet spot is between instrumentality, which might make some of us cringe, and pure critique, which is instrumentally useless. Have you found it yet? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. I will see what the response to this book is. Mm. And actually, in that area, what is the future of psychiatry? I was very interested, just uh, two weeks ago was World Mental Health Day. And on World Mental Health Day, the Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health published its report. It had published a previous report that I talk about rather critically in the book. Now, in this report, it begins to move towards saying, actually, psychiatrists must take a role in public policy. 
They must move out of the clinic. They must engage with those other kinds of questions because there are never going to be enough psychiatrists. There are never going to be enough pills. There are never going to be enough of any of these other kinds of clinical interventions to resolve that problem. So I think some people are moving towards this. In another part of my work, so I'm doing some work which is actually quite kind of, in a sense, it's quite conceptual under the heading The Urban Brain, which is looking at the consequences of metropolitan life for mental life. Classic, you know, every student of sociology will have read Zimmel's The Metropolis of Mental Life. How does living in the metropolis transform mental life? What kind of mental life do you need if you're going to be living in the heart of Melbourne? So spinning off from that theoretical concern is a series of uh, studies of mental health and migration in megacities because Zimmel was concerned with not transnational migration but with migration from the countryside to the city. The mass amount of migration that we're seeing in the world today, especially in China but also in Latin America or in Africa, is migration from the countryside to the city. So myself and my colleagues thought that that might be a natural experiment to try and understand the consequences of urban living on mental life and mental health for people moving from the countryside to the city, which might also have some practical consequences. We started doing our work in Shanghai, where about a third of the Shanghai population of 27 million are migrants from the countryside to the city. And we started arguing, asking, uh, what do people know about the mental health of migrants? And the answer was nothing. We don't care, and we don't know anything about it, and we haven't got services for it. That's slightly an exaggeration, but uh, something like that. And we felt, well, that was a policy Question. That was a policy question about how you address the mental health of these huge migrant populations. Or it is a policy question about how you might produce age-friendly cities or mental health-friendly cities. We're familiar with the fact that almost every city, I think Melbourne as well, has dropped curbs now to try and change the city into a place where people in wheelchairs or people with buggies can move around. It's, it's not impossible to think about how you can manage the urban environment to make it more amenable to people who have particular kinds of needs. And in doing that, mm -hmm. dropping the curbs, you make it amenable to everybody, much easier for everybody. I happen to have really bad eyesight and get lost very easily. And most cities have very, very bad signage. I have to wander up and down or find a native to try and work out which street I'm in. I look at Google, it says, walk north. It says walk north. I say, what do you mean walk north? Excuse me, which way is north? You know, so just some base. If I'm starting to have problems with my memory, simple basic marking of street signs is a way of managing urban environments to make them more friendly. So there are, they are little sweet spots that you might have with planners or with city managers or with people responsible for traffic calming and things like that. And using you know, all this smart city kind of stuff to begin to do that. It's a real challenge to transform these general things into things that do meet the needs of planners. But, you know, it seems to me to be a, a worthwhile challenge to undertake if one can try and do that. Hmm. I was just thinking through some of the conversations we were having this earlier, earlier this morning um, about, yeah, some of these biotech companies and um, we didn't really directly engage with profit motives of, of, of some of these individuals that you have lifelong friendships with. 
All right, I don't want to be... When I say you've got to think of people trying to do the best in the best of all possible worlds and all that kind of thing, I'm not being naive about these things, of course. There are profit motives, there are uh, career motives, there are personal ambitions and personal hatreds and all those kinds of things. And we are also absolutely cursed, as, as you would know, in the area of emerging biotechnologies, uh, with absurd hype. And quite often, one of the interesting things about the sort of critical friendship mode is that when you begin to talk to the people who are doing the science, they are as embarrassed by the hype as you or I are. The hype is, uh, is generated by the university PR departments and things like that. And then they are forced to come on the radio and, you know, when is the cure for cancer going to happen? Oh, it's in three to five years. Three to five years is like an imaginable period, but it's kind of long enough that people have forgotten that you said it's going to happen. In, in three to five years and you would know Evan from the stuff on the Human Genome Project mm. everything that was going to happen within 20 years and has not happened happened at all so there's a, an absurd amount of hype and I think actually being if one can put it like that I'm a believer in science you know I, I would like to go back to those periods in the 1930s when radical intellectuals and Marxist intellectuals in the UK at least believed in the power of science to improve people's lives um, and, and I would like to get back to that sense that science does have an obligation to improve people's lives, that scientific research does. And, and what are the obstacles to it doing that? Well, I believe that the hype is likely to lead to disillusionment with science as much as to uh, uh, convince people that science is going to resolve their problems. I find critique an easy posture to have. It's an easy posture to say, this is not going to work, these people are making false claims, the um, evidence doesn't support this, etc., 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 and then to retreat feeling you have done something simply through the activity of critique. Or the other thing of critique, which is, you know, to read through the surface to understand what the real motives and incentives are. Oh, actually, these guys are only saying this because of X, Y, and Z, only saying this because they want to make money, only saying this because of boosterism for their industry etc etc we have a lot of that and i find that unhelpful i think criticism in the sort of critical friendship mode is something which i would want i would want to work for instance in my little neck of the woods i would want to work with psychiatrists to say well if these arguments that you're making for instance about psychiatric drugs so I think most psychiatric drugs, especially the ones that are so widely used, the claims about their efficacy are really overblown, and most people know the claims to their efficacy are really overblown. Okay, so if we can accept that these drugs have a certain limited role, but the claim to their efficacy is overblown, what would be an alternative practice which might make use of the drugs that we have to modify people's moods and emotions and desires and so on, but do so in a way that doesn't lead then to all the harms that we know happen if people take these drugs for one, two, three, four, five years, take them again and again and again. So I think critical friendship, in my view, is to say, yes, that's what we know and what we don't know about drugs, what we don't know and what we do know about the genetics of particular kinds of conditions, what we do know and what we don't know about the brain basis of these conditions. Let's be quite honest about the limitations of our knowledge 
and then think about and accept that the so-called general public will probably be quite happy if we say, you know, actually we don't know a lot of these things, we don't understand, but we're working on them as much as we can, and then try and see what are the most fruitful paths forward. And as I think, you know, I'm working now with the Human Brain Project, which at the beginning made all sorts of very uh, hostages to fortune about being able to simulate the human brain in the next 10 years in a neuromorphic supercomputer, which everybody knows is not going to happen. Uh, but now, I think, is beginning to make some much more practical claims about the beginning of the capacity to understand what's going on in certain circuits of the human brain when people experience strange emotions or hear things or whatever without necessarily saying this is the origin or the basis let's just try and understand what these kinds of neural events are and if we understand these neural events that in itself will be a good thing and may help us in a way to find ways of intervening so uh, I would like to be hopeful that the sort of critical approach can work with scientists who are themselves, researchers who are themselves critical of those very hypey claims to move things in a more positive direction. And in particular, when people are talking about applications, so in my area of psychiatry, a lot of the work is done in labs, but people make... Uh, uh, assertions about what's likely to happen when these come out of the lab and into the world, I think those of us who do the sort of social and human sciences, who know a little bit more about how these things work in the world, are able to temper some of those promises and perhaps feed back to those people who are doing that work that if you really want to have these effects in the world, these are the kinds of paths that you should follow rather than those. So it's a limited hope, but it's, uh, I think it's better than either the self-satisfaction of critique or irony, which again I, I find personally distasteful, uh, and just says, well, we might have some modest effects by working with these people because we kind of share some of the same concerns. I'm, you know, I know a lot of people who live in extreme distress because of the what are called their psychiatric problems, and I would, you know, things that can improve their lives would be a good thing for me. Another politics of the human brain is possible. <laughs> Another politics of the human brain, yeah. Yeah, we hope. Well, thank yeah. you, Nick, and thank yeah. you, Eben, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. Today we've been speaking to Nicholas Rose, Professor of Global Health and Social Health at King's College, and Eben Kirksey, Research Professor at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization. If you'd like to learn more about their work, you can find Nick at nicholasrose.com and Eben at ebenkirksey.blogspot.com. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, Timothy Neal, and David Giles, with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at TD Neal, and David is at DH Border Giles. And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. Thank <laughs> you.